Colleges are focused as never before on the role of student well-being in ensuring persistence and completion. What are the special challenges and strategies for the growing numbers of students who are studying partially or fully online? Hello, and welcome to The Key, Inside Higher Ed's news and analysis podcast. I'm Doug Letterman, editor and co-founder of IHE, and today's episode is a little different from the norm. I essentially outsourced it from a great conversation that took place earlier this month at Digital Universities U.S., an event that Inside Higher Ed co-hosted in Chicago with our partners from Times Higher Education. The event overall featured a wide range of sessions about how colleges and universities were making their way in the increasingly digital world that we live in and evolving their practices to serve the changing expectations of students, employees, and their other constituents. One particular conversation featured leaders from three very different institutions talking about how their colleges and universities create online or blended educational experiences that build a sense of community and belonging for students, prepare faculty and staff members to respond to learners' social and psychological needs as well as their academic ones, and use data effectively. The session was moderated by my colleague Charlotte Coles of Times Higher Education and featured Sarah Dysart, Senior Director of Online Learning at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, Omid Fatui, Director of Learning Innovation at WGU Labs, and Jeremy Alexis, Vice Provost in the Office of Professional and Continuing Education at Illinois Institute of Technology, whose amazing campus in Chicago played host to the event. An edited version of the conference discussion follows. Before we begin, here's a word from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which has sponsored this series of podcasts on post-secondary student success. This episode of The Key is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, working to ensure that race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status are no longer predictors of educational success. Learn more about the Foundation's work to improve digital teaching and learning, advance institutional transformation, and more at usprogram.gatesfoundation.org. Now on to today's episode. We'll hear first from Charlotte Coles. Looking back at the last couple of years, what new observations do you have of students' experience of higher education? How much has changed from your perspective? Jeremy? I think it's interesting because uh, for about the last 20, 25 years, the consulting firms I work for, we've, we've always been pitching, we are in the time of greatest change in the history of humanity. And for 20 years we were saying that, but, but now I kind of actually believe it, mm-hmm. right? That you know, there's between the pandemic and the rise of AI and everything yeah. else going on there. It's, it's just really sort of a, a, really a time of great change for our students. Mm-hmm. I've seen our students, they need a little bit more structure and instruction mm-hmm. before they get going. But once they have that, they're actually going further than students that I've had in the past. So I think it's kind of a, a balance that we're, we're seeing. But I'm kind of interested in what's going to happen, you know, in the next few years as some of these trends and factors start to become more pronounced. I mean, you say they need more instruction. Do you think that's because there's more tools and devices available to them, or is it... I think much of it might have to do, and this is just a hypothesis, much of it might have to do with their education and K through 12, where it felt like uh, there's a lot more structure to their learning, um, and they're, they're not necessarily prepared to build their own process. So instead, they, they need a process, but once they've seen it, they're actually quite adept at customizing it to their own needs. Got it. And Sarah at Michigan. Yeah, so this is such a great question. I think not that it's changed, but... 
I'm an educational psychologist by training, and the context in which learners are situated is so incredibly important. And our institution is heavily residential. We have been kind of slowly moving more toward formal online degrees. We have a vast open portfolio, but many of the instructors on campus are really focused on residential learners. And I think the uh, the the need for instructors to be thinking about the context in which learners are situated, not just physical context, but what's happening psychologically, what's happening emotionally to these learners, really hit instructors in a way that was new to them in some ways during the pandemic. And I think that that's really changed in terms of how instructors are willing to put more attention to what's happening in learners' lives. What are even our residential learners focusing on? What are they balancing in in addition to their studies? And learners are expecting that. They're expecting more flexibility. They're expecting people to be accommodating and understanding of the things that they're going through in their lives that don't just involve their academic track. Yeah, lots of thoughts, and just echoing what my colleagues are, are saying here. Um, <clears throat> but you know, it's it's hard uh, not to contextualize this question around some of the recent disruptions re- re- uh, relating to the pandemic and technology. What we noticed, we've got some data that shows that as a result of the pandemic, more so than any other time in history, there were higher levels of self-reported isolation. Students not just saying that I don't feel like I'm connected or I don't feel like I have access to resources, but literally saying I feel isolated. That's a pretty extreme state for individuals to be going through, especially as they're starting a new experience where they're they're hoping to integrate into society. That's a very difficult backdrop to begin your experience in higher ed. And then on the back of that, we have this advent of technology, which also was fueled by the fact that you can also experience your learning through more flexible mechanisms. You can, you can choose to, ta- to take some of the learning at home or after we've come, come out, out of the pandemic, have some combination of at home or in, in class. Once students have tasted that, there's more options. Now the irony of options is that it also has a tax with choice, right? Like if you have options, you now have to exert energy to make a choice. And that too is adding a layer of complication for students. What we're seeing, in the workforce, in some of the large surveys that are going out, when we ask individuals now what their preferred modality of work is, and you can ask yourselves what this is for you as well, people are saying, I actually prefer a flexible model where I can choose to go in on certain days and not on other days. And this is particularly true for subgroups that have more competing demands. Right? If you have a family at home, if you have to have a job at the same time of going to school, then the flexible option makes sense. It's also true for students who are also now also saying, now that I've tasted that there is an option, I want that flexible modality, but we don't fully understand the complications and the, and the consequences of this modality quite yet. And I think there's a lot happening um, that we don't yet fully understand, but we know there's sort of a, an emerging set of tensions that students are grappling with. One last bit of data, which is really interesting. We've been working with a number of schools And one of the most recent patterns that I keep hearing over and over for uh, traditional brick and mortar institutions, especially those who have on-campus residence options, more so than any other time, students are saying that they want on-campus residence options, but they're asking for individual uh, accommodations. Mm -hmm. They're really, for whatever reason, quite averse to sharing their rooms with other people more than at any other time. I don't really know what that means, 
But I do think it's an important data point um, mm -hmm. to, to reflect on. And I think in the context <laughs> of all these changes, it's, uh, it's kind of leading to uh, a, a recognition that students are just navigating their, their learning in a very different way. Just picking up on that point around flexibility, do you agree that all institutions are going to have to move towards this flexible approach to create the most optimum online learning environments for their students? Sarah, maybe. Yes, absolutely. And I think we are specifically seeing this in our mental health services that the, the, the CAPS, our um, Counseling and Psychological Services Unit on campus, in discussions with them, they've said that so many of the learners that are traditionally residentially enrolled in residential programs are still requesting the online tele-mental health counseling options. Uh, and I think it, it raises some challenges around, what, to what you were saying, space. Where do people actually take these calls? Where are they taking their counseling calls if not coming into a counselor's space? So that flexibility in thinking about offering services for online learners, it creates a more robust infrastructure within the university that actually serves all students better. And that's really, I think, where we're able to push forward over the past couple of years is helping people understand that, where there might have been reluctance within the central infrastructure units to, to offer some of those online services pushing them into that through the pandemic, help them see how that flexible remote options for various services are really more accommodating to all learners who have different things that they're juggling in their lives. Yeah, and Jeremy, how do you approach flexible learning environments at IIT? Yeah, I, I like to use the, the analogy that when uh, the electric guitar was invented, right, the first version of the electric guitar was essentially just an acoustic guitar that you plugged in, it was slightly louder, right? And it really didn't take advantage of the fact that you were you know, turning sort of physical, mechanical things into electronic signals. Right. It wasn't until much later that the actual, the electric guitar that we're familiar with sort of opened up a whole range of possibilities. And I feel that we're sort of on that, that sort of uh, tipping point in the world of online education that mm -hmm. we've essentially taken the old way, right, and sort of made it digital to some extent. But we're only now starting to see how this, these new approaches can enable and unlock innovation uh, for students. And I think the, the key word to that is flexibility, right? It's optionality and flexibility, that whether you're on campus or you're off campus, I actually see that becoming less and less of a distinction going forward because it, we really start to see the students being able to engage in classes in new ways and not only in, in sort of the, the traditional class time, but how do you start to make this more of a sort of a persistent thing? So when you have that question, can you get it answered quickly, immediately, sort of just in time, as opposed to waiting to have to have it answered you know, a week from now from your faculty member? I think it's safe to say that whether you're faculty or administrator, that student well-being is everybody's responsibility within the institution. And so for yourselves, like how does your institution ensure that people have the training, the skills, the confidence to tackle any challenges or opportunities around student well-being? This is such a great question when you juxtapose the residential environment versus the online environment. Mm -hmm. Learners who are in strictly online programs, their primary touch point is the instructor in the course. And so it puts a burden or a responsibility, depending on how you, how you want to frame it, on the instructor in ways that you don't necessarily normally see when you're teaching residentially to be monitoring students' well-being. So one of the things that we have really focused with our, when building the 
infrastructure for programs within academic units is to also have a staff member who is really focused on being the concierge and the point of contact that can be the, the person who's working with the faculty members to when, when a faculty member experiences a student in crisis, they know that they can contact the student services professional who, who knows the right routes and the right processes to refer that student to the resources that they need. And making sure that those processes are mapped out, that they're clear to everyone, that everyone knows what services are and aren't available, especially in a space where if you don't have appropriate licensure to offer counseling across state lines or internationally, that becomes a problem. So knowing what services are or aren't available to students is really important and puts an extra load of, of knowledge that needs to be on those professionals that are working in the online space. Have you faced any challenges with this? Has there been any challenges that you've had to address along the way? I imagine it's a journey. Yes, absolutely. We've had students who were in crisis and the instructor didn't know how to actually handle it. And, mm -hmm. and pre prior to the pandemic, we did not actually have telehealth counseling for online learners. So it was a challenge for both the counselor, embedded counselor within the, within the school, the student services professional, as well as the faculty member to know how to handle that particular instance. But those instances are also cases that help us explain to broad Broader, people who are, are need to be persuaded at the infrastructure or, or institutional leadership level that these learners need to be served in the same way as our residential learners do, and so we do need to have these services available to them. We're at a much different scale in terms of just size as the University of Michigan. So yeah. I think the pathway that, that is, is emerging, it's actually being run by our, our Vice Provost of Academic Affairs, is really focused on mentoring, right? So we're, we're building a mentoring structure, which is training, uh, evaluation, and support of a large group of mentors of our students who can go back and mentor other students. Mm -hmm. And again, they are, it's very critical that they know what they can do and what they can't do, so they, they know when to move them to the right counseling. Um, but having that sort of uh, early warning system of lots of students who are empowered you know, mm -hmm. to do the mentoring, but also empowered to know where to send students once they, once they observe something, for our scale, that seems like the, the best solution to, to this particular issue. Brilliant. Amid? These initiatives are uh, clear examples of sort of a cultural focus that we have currently on, on well-being. And that has both positives and some potential negative consequences. Whenever there is a, a priority initiative, like well-being, like belonging, like a growth mindset, it's usually a reaction to the, the observation that there's something in the system that warrants that need, right? We only are talking about well-being because we know that students are struggling with well-being. The challenge there is that when you have this initiative that is sort of very explicit, one thing to keep in mind is where is the onus of change being placed? So oftentimes you'll see institutions say, this is the year of well-being, or we prioritize and value well-being but there's not clear intentionality with where the onus uh, or the expectation of change is. Sometimes it's sort of deployed as a marketing campaign saying, we care about well-being, so go out and be well without any inst inst institutional change. Or the faculty who are the sole points of contact are now faced with this burden of supporting well-being without having the resources or the training on how to do that. So I think it's critically important to be mindful of how our students are doing, what they need to be able to thrive, 
But with that, there should also be a recognition of where is the onus of impact and change being placed? Who is, who is sort of expected to bear the load of this change as you roll any sort of large campaign out? And I think, uh, I think these are important considerations to, to think about. That's a great call out. And if I can add something, I think what, I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit. But this is where over the past year or so, we've, we've joined the Okanagan char Charter for those who are not familiar. It's a focus of uh, inter institutional focus on mental health and well-being. Um, and this is a place where one of the things that people realized is that faculty don't adequately know how to support mental health and well-being within courses. We're partnering with our Center for Teaching and Learning to help change that. So we're, we're creating a course for them that's actually helping them be able to understand what are some of the indicators that you need to be looking for. What does some of the research say in terms of how this manifests within the, the experience within your course? What are some of the things that you should be looking for? And what are the routes that you need to take to refer students, both if you're a residential instructor or an online instructor? And I think that that's really important. You can't just say that, that it's a priority, but then not actually do the work underlying that to actually fix the system that we're in. This episode of The Key is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, working to ensure that race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status are no longer predictors of educational success. Learn more about the Foundation's work to improve digital teaching and learning, advance institutional transformation, and more at U.S. Program. GatesFoundation.org. This episode of The Key features a discussion that took place at Digital Universities U.S., a joint conference from Times Higher Education and Inside Higher Ed in Chicago this month. The session was moderated by Times Higher Ed's Charlotte Coles and included the University of Michigan's Sarah Dysart, Omid Fatui of WG Labs, and Illinois Tech's Jeremy Alexis. Here's the rest of the conversation, starting with Charlotte Coles. What role does data play in this, in this online environment? What, how, how should we be using data to help inform and not just be reactive, as you mentioned, Omid, but proactive? I'll uh, certainly have a bias for data because I am a research, researcher by training. But I, I think especially in times of uncertainty. Uh, Daniel Kahneman has a fantastic book called uh, Noise. And he talks about the utility of inference. So how is it that you can take the data that's available and, and make an inference about what it means, what kind of patterns it re represents? And in that book, he talks about the two kinds of errors that can sort of skew your ability to make an inference. The one kind of error is bias, which means that systematically people look at the data and they sort of interpret it in one way, which is off target by a small margin. Um, and that's typically where we, where we focus a lot of our attention, is like in which ways are our institutions, our programs biased? In which way are they sort of misdirected? But the other kind of noise is actually random error, which is actually a larger part of the kind of error composition. And that means that data falls all over the place, especially in times of uncertainty. Now, the best remedy to this random error is to increase your sample size and try to have as much data as you can. So data is at our disposal. Most of institutions, whether online or residential, will have access to vast amounts of data, but often it's underutilized. The complement to that in what we're doing with WGU Labs 
is we're hosting what we're calling a College Innovation Network, which is, which is a consortium of 17 different schools with that very explicit goal in mind, is how is it that we can aggregate data from across all these schools who are navigating different kinds of challenges in various ways so that we can make the best inferences possible with the little kind of data that we have available. So I think data is critical. I think it's often underutilized because it's sometimes overwhelming. But how is it that we can put into place the structures, the personnel, the expertise to capture that and synthesize that, I think would be helpful. This is a place where data needs to be used very carefully because the indicators that you will see in online learners and the ways that they show up to the course depending or program, depending on how that design is intentionally eliciting certain behaviors, may be conflated with mental health or well-being challenges when in reality, sometimes these learners just are juggling different priorities in their lives. So I, I think this is a place where we try to remind people that data is both quantitative and qualitative, and the qualitative really matters. You may have clear indicators when somebody's in front of you if they are facing a well-being challenge. That is more challenging when you have the psychological distance in the, in the online space. So you have to seek out ways to intentionally elicit some of that data from, from people. And that's where those staff being, those staff or those instructors being able to spot something, not making assumptions, but also doing proactive outreach to learners and saying, are you facing a challenge? Is there something that, you're, that we can help you with? Is so important to be able to elicit whether or not a student's struggling. Absolutely, and Jeremy, same question to you. And on top of that, how important is it to communicate to the student what kind of data you're collecting to monitor you know, their health and well-being? I love that comment about the mix of qualitative and mm -hmm. quantitative, right? Because oftentimes when we look at a data set, you're, you're worried about the difference between a mystery and a puzzle, right? A puzzle is a problem that has a, a single clear piece of data that will answer it. Right. But most of the time when we're thinking about student well-being and student issues, it's more of a mystery, right? It's a mix of factors. It's no single one factor and no single data point is all of a sudden going to make it easier to, to solve their problems. So that's why having the, the mix of qualitative and quantitative and doing one-on-one -on -one check ins can be so important. I think, though, that the issue that, that you brought up is one that we're going to continue to face, and I'm not sure that I have a, a good answer for that, which is just being transparent about what data is being collected. And mm -hmm. it's very interesting because a lot of our students in their other online life, right? tons and tons of data is being collected about them. And they, they have signed user agreements, and they seem to be OK with it. But we can't, we can't use that as an excuse not to treat our world with the students very differently, right? so that we can be more transparent and upfront about what's going on. I want to move on slightly to talk about community. So whether you're online, hybrid, in person, what strategies do you use to create that sense of community and belonging for students, whatever environment they're learning in? It's taken for granted that we are all sort of pre-equipped with uh, some pretty core motivational foundations, one of which is that we have this need to belong. I mean, the reason why we come together in groups is because of that need to belong. The reason why we have motivation, in fact, I would argue, is also because of that fundamental need to belong. And in part, that shows itself when you sort of create opportunities that allows people to organically and naturally try to connect, and often they do. So I think as we think about just that fundamental motivation, it's important to rec recognize that it's often there, mm -hmm. right? It's just about being able to unleash it and provide the channels to allow people to do that connection. 
in a way that feels nourishing to their core, core needs. From a sort of fundamental dimension, I think, I think there's a lot happening, and, and it's just about creating those pathways. The challenge, and I'll go back to that sort of broad contextual movement around well-being, there's also that parallel movement around belonging right now. And just like the, the year of well-being, there's also the year of belonging, where literally I have seen examples of billboards as students are driving into campus saying, belong, exclamation mark. <laughs> and the thing about belonging is it doesn't work when you're explicitly told to belong. Students, before they even set foot on campus, are told that you belong here hundreds of times. After a while, they're like, why am I being told that I belong here? Should I question whether I belong here or not? You know, what's interesting about belonging is that the best way or the best path to fostering belonging is in, uh, in creating a position of interest and a position of just uh, appreciating individuals from their, for their diverse uh, experiences and backgrounds. That means taking the time to ask them about themselves, taking the time to show that they are part of the institution. And that's a, that's a pretty heavy load. That's a heavy, heavy burden to, to carry, but that's really the most meaningful way of, of doing that. And then on top of that, allowing them to connect with each other. Mm -hmm. right? I think there's a fundamental need to see their peers as a resource that they can leverage. And so how do you create the structures for them to be able to do that connection in a way that they want to? Is it more challenging, say, if a student is fully online? I think it's a different dynamic because, again, that fundamental need is there. And in some ways, if, if we want to get very theoretical, it might actually be a better balance because as you think of the more traditional institutions, for some subgroups, there's almost uh, an excessive amount of pressure to fit in, as though belonging is the only way into this one profile of a student. Whereas if you really think about the educational experience, it is a transactional relationship. Like Students are here to get an education with the hopes of getting a job. And as a culture, and maybe as, as this group, and, and more, more, more generally, us as administrators, as policymakers, we realize that belonging is associated with better retention, better performance. Uh, and better outcomes, and so we've really pushed this narrative of trying to get everyone to belong. But there is also a cost to that, because sometimes belonging can be toxic, especially when it's pushed too hard and pushed in too much of a sort of a, 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 a monotone way. Online learning can offer that balance. If mm -hmm. you are competing with other demands at home, if you have a certain lifestyle that f fosters better to a transactional relationship with your peers and your education, then that provides a really great alternative. That's such a great vein of discussion that you've opened up. When you look at the research around why students choose certain programs, their prior history and the way that they feel like they belonged or didn't in a particular environment predicts their future choices to engage in educational opportunities. So when you think about students who are underrepresented on a campus and they were forced to come to a residential experience, being able to pursue that online where they may not feel marginalized or may not feel as, as much in terms of, of stereotype threat when they're not necessarily engaging with the populations who may be imposing those assumptions on them opens up an opportunity for them to be able to perform in their own situated environments and to be able to think through how their learning experience isn't necessarily isolated to that particular physical context of a campus, but it might be related to their jobs. And they're able to 
understand how the work that they're doing in their program actually aligns with their professional aspirations and to be able to apply that there. In terms of the interpersonal connections, we've really found XR to be a, a helpful tool for mixing and blending populations between our residential learners and our online populations. So when you think about the different clubs or groups or events that are happening on campus, to have that be represented in 360 video for the online learners and for them to engage in a way that seems more authentic or even telepresence robots being able to interact in a way as if they're there um, is a way for them to create an opportunity that makes them feel like they're part of that broader community in a way that they weren't able to before. When, when it comes to building community, especially in an online environment, uh, I, I really believe that rituals are important, right? We have them when we live in a physical space and we have a, a co-located community. But online, they're just as important, right? Because it's a way to sort of um, bring in some normalcy, bring in some standards of behavior, bring in some traditional interactions. So it's, it's even simple things like how do you check into class? Mm -hmm. How do you give feedback? And if you build those rituals, it starts to build a connection. Because oftentimes, online learners... You know, they're coming from different places. They, they don't always have sort of the same experiences. It's a much more diverse group. So bringing a few shared rituals together can really help. Um, we've, we've also really pushed social contracts as well as a way for the team to sort of set up and understand the rules of the class um, before they get going. Like the other day, I, you know, we've, I've been online now for teaching online now for, what, three, three and a half years. For the first time, someone ate lunch in front of me. And I realized, like, you know, I've been doing this for hours and hours a day. No one's ever eaten lunch in front of me. There must be some weird, unwritten rule that no one eats lunch in front of Jeremy that I just didn't understand. <laughs> um, and I thought that was great that it broke it, but it also made me say, hey, there was this sort of unwritten rule. Mm -hmm. Maybe we need to be more transparent about what the rules are of behavior around these things so people do feel more comfortable. And do you think that will develop over time? Like, you know, are we still adapting to this new set of rules in terms of what's, what are the guidelines for how you behave online? Like anything, like you, you can either be proactive and intentional about it, or it will just happen to you, right? Mm -hmm. the, the rules will be there whether you want them or not, right? Yeah. You, you can just choose to author them in a strategic way to align with your values versus mm -hmm. kind of letting them happen. In a lot of these discussions, we tend to take a course-centric view of this, and, and rightfully so, mm -hmm. because what happens inside the course makes a big difference. What happens outside of the individual online courses also makes a huge difference when it comes to well-being, when it comes to retention and all of that. My question has to do with whether those support services are best delivered within a dedicated online unit or it, whether they're better served by that online unit training the different student services, admissions, and, and, and all of that to, to provide services to fully online students? I think it, it depends highly on context and your institution and what resources are available. At the University of Michigan, each college and school functions as its own little ecosystem. So from our perspective, we have people within, I'm in the Center for Academic Innovation within the provost office, and we train people or we support better understanding within those units. I, I think from my perspective, they are the ones who are closest to the student and can actually provide that day-to-day -day support in a meaningful way. We do have some services that are at the infrastructure level. And similarly, we provide the support to those units to help understand what's happening within those programs. As I've been sitting here this week and just meeting different people, we've 
been able to, you know, sit down face to face and have more natural, authentic conversations just because we're in that proximity. And so from an online perspective, how do we emulate that? How do you emulate that very natural? And I know there's there's always going to be some element of the unnatural just because you're not in the same place. But in building that community, how have you trained people or uh, approached building the natural conversations within the online or hybrid communities? I think it's a great question, and I'm not going to pretend like I have the solution. I, I go back to my earlier comment that, again, we're sort of social creatures that have this need to belong. Increasingly, there's a question around what is belonging? Is it literally the face-to-face, one-on-one kind of connection that you have? Or can it be more of a symbolic maybe a, a digitally facilitated kind of experience. I think it's probably a combination of both. And, and you know, to the, Jeremy's point earlier, you can have mechanisms that nourish that, that same sense of connection. I think routines and traditions are, are really important. Like for instance, at WGU, while it's completely online competency-based uh, and the only interaction you have is with your mentor, um, they still have a, a graduation ceremony that's in person. That's very important to have that celebration with others in person. Conferences, the reason why we pay $1,000 to go to a conference on top of the transportation costs is because we know there is something very unique about that human exchange, the organic exchange that happens just by being in the same room as somebody else. Um, So I don't know that there has to be sort of an and or. I think it's probably some combination because, again, there's a lot of benefits to being able to access certain experiences like your work experience, like your education, in a way that is conducive to your life demands. At the same time, that need to belong is fundamental. And so I'm not sure we're going to find a digital replacement for that, as far as I can tell. I think it's interesting that the first time I was in front of a big you know, set of tiles, if you will, and I was using my own strategy of, I'll just wait them out. Usually in a, a physical group, right? if you wait it out, eventually someone will talk. But when you're on the screen, 15 minutes into it, I'm like, oh, this is not going to work. So one of the things, we have a really, uh, we, we call it a, a sticky learning playbook that we share with faculty. And a couple things really help. Right? It's so simple, but it's this idea of templates, right? Of If you're going to have people have a conversation, break them into a smaller group and give them a template that they can use to manage the discussion. Mm-hmm. Because it is so easy just to sit back and be passive you know, on the screen and not jump in. But if you give a group a template that they have to come back and share, it's very helpful. We've also observed that the, the very tried and true, you know, sort of elementary school parent share method works fantastically. I even use it with uh, online executive courses that I teach because it, it still is helpful to sort of play with mm-hmm. an idea with someone online first before you share it back with the group. But I don't have the answer in the online, fully online space. But in the hybrid space, I think thinking about the curriculum where you start with an opportunity to meet in person and to engage in person, if you do have people coming to campus or if you're offering flexibility for residential learners, helps to create that understanding of I can actually see this person's facial expressions as they're saying something. I can hear their voice in my head. When you then transition the curriculum to the online environment, that carries with it. You feel like you know that that person in a way that you may not have known them earlier. So if you are experimenting with hybrid programs, putting that in-person element at the beginning of the experience can really go a long way. You were just listening to a discussion about student well-being and success in online and blended settings from this month's Digital University's U.S. event. 
Thanks to the three higher ed leaders who participated in this panel and in all the other great conversations that unfolded during the conference. Thanks also to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for its support of this and the last two episodes of the Key Podcast. The podcast in this series explored various aspects of how colleges are changing their practices to focus on making it possible for more learners to achieve their educational goals in high quality programs. There is no more pressing issue in higher education these days because it has moral, financial, political, and other implications. It's the subject of Inside Higher Ed's newest editorial offering, our daily student success newsletter, and it will be the topic of another major event that we'll be putting on with Times Higher Education in November in Los Angeles. If you have ideas for how we can best track these issues, that's all for this episode of The Key. I'm Doug Letterman, and until next time, stay well and stay safe.